Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. History Hits Book Club is back with a bang, and this time we've gone medieval. See what I did there? I'm Matt Lewis, co-host of History Hits Gone Medieval podcast, and one of the most interesting guests I've had on was Charles Spencer, author of the fascinating The White Ship, which retells with thrilling, movie-like, heart-thumping prose the story of one dark, cold night that forever changed the course of English history. In June and July, we're reading The White Ship, and book club members get exclusive access to events and info from behind the scenes as we build up to a live Q&A with Charles Spencer, which I get the pleasure of hosting. You'll also get free access to other History Hit events included with your book club membership, as if you needed any other reason to sign up. Join in the fun, learn about history's key moments, people and themes, and join Charles Spencer and I for a live Q&A session in July. You can sign up today by following the link in the description below to start reaping the rewards of membership of History Hit's book club. Hello and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm your host for today's episode and my name is Dr Kat Jarman. Funerary rituals show us what people in the past thought about mortality, about what they thought came next, about social structures and over time how societies changed and responded to invasions, migrations and major political events. And by studying the remains of those who were buried, we can piece together their unique stories and put them into the bigger picture. This is precisely the topic of the brand new book by Professor Alice Roberts called Buried, an alternative history of the first millennium in Britain. In her book, Alice sweeps through a thousand years of British history, combining historical sources, archaeology and cutting-edge scientific research into human remains. Professor Alice Roberts is well known for her TV documentaries, not least the BBC archaeology series Digging for Britain. She has also written numerous books on a wide range of topics, including archaeology, evolution and anatomy. She's also a professor of public engagement in science at the University of Birmingham. I'm delighted to have Alice here on the podcast with me today to talk about her new book and also to discuss some of the biggest topics it covers, including what the latest scientific methods can contribute with 
in studying the medieval period. So Alice, thanks so much for joining us on Gone Medieval today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm straying into medieval times, so I think the first time, at least in literary form. Yes, absolutely. So this is quite a sort of move away from you, isn't it? Because most of your your both your TV, well, your TV work goes all over the place, but especially your your own books and your own series have gone actually down hundreds of thousands of years, even millions of years before, haven't they? So to prehistory. And did you find on this book, working on this sort of material, did you find that quite a challenge in comparison? Yeah, in some ways. It's interesting because I've always had this kind of dual, I suppose, fascination in biological anthropology in both the kind of evolutionary aspect of it, but then also the more recent aspect of it where, you know, we're looking at more recent archaeological human remains. And then I'm particularly interested in pathology. So I've always had that kind of dual interest. And I suppose actually that goes right back to my PhD which was looking at disease and ancient skeletons around the shoulder, but actually doing that from, it kind of combined both. So, uh, so yeah. for some of my PhD, I was looking at medieval skeletons and mapping these patterns of disease around the shoulder. And then for some of it, I was actually taking this much broader evolutionary approach and comparing human shoulders with chimpanzee and gorilla shoulders. So I've always had that dual thing. But what I haven't done before is, you know, written a whole book about the historical period. So this book follows on from Ancestors, which is, about prehistoric Britain through the lens of burial archaeology. If I'm completely honest about it, Kat, it was going to be one book which was going to go from prehistory to the present day. Ah. And then I realised I'd written so much. <laughs> I'd written about 120,000 words and I'd only got to the end of the Iron Age. So it ended up being a whole book on the prehistoric bit. So that's why I'm now kind of writing the rest of it. But what I'm finding quite difficult, and I write about this in the very beginning, And I describe the history, the written documentation as a blessing and a curse because it's wonderful to hear the names of people and the names of tribes and to know that the Duratrigas were living in Dorset and the Silurios were living in South Wales and there was someone called Boudicca and somebody called Togged Dubness. And those names are just so alluring. And yet I want to focus on the archaeology. I want the archaeology to speak for itself. And I did find it quite difficult in the book. Every now and then I found the history kind of clamouring And I would have to pull back from that and say, okay, I love all this stuff from Gildas and the Venerable Bede and all of that. But actually what I'm trying to do is forefront the archaeology. So actually the archaeology isn't just an illustration for the history. It's a whole body of information and knowledge in its own right. So yeah, I did find it tricky because of course you don't have that in prehistory. Exactly. And I want to get back to some of those issues uh, later on because quite often I think that history and historiography and actually the way that we've considered those sources has actually messed with and almost messed up some of the evidence because there's been a very strong bias towards the historical sources and and the archaeology and and, things like the bones have had a bit of a sideline. But I want to get back to that more specifically a bit later on because there's some really, really good examples in your book. But I also wanted to ask you, because on the sort of blurb on the back of your book, it's calling it an alternative history of the first millennium. And it's also telling us that you focus, as you've just explained as well, it's it's on the archaeology, but it's very specifically on the bones and on the burials, especially. So Mm. so just as a very wide question, is death or someone's death actually a useful way of learning about their life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we both do this, don't we? We both look at archaeological human remains and draw out biographical details from them. So you know, at the point somebody dies, 
it's not as they their whole body is cleansed of everything that's happened. You know, the, the skeleton is a record of what has happened during somebody's life. I say the skeleton, obviously, we rebuild our skeletons over time, but still you can see signs of, you know, ancient fractures that you might have had in childhood even. So you've got this kind of um, document in bone of somebody's life, if you know how to read it. And it's limited in some ways, but in other ways it's not. And this is why I became a, a university academic at the end of the day, because I was a medical doctor originally and then I just was absolutely blown away by how much information you actually could extract from archaeological human remains. I mean I think when I started I thought well what are we going to be able to do age and sex and maybe estimate the height of the individual but we can map out so much pathology and that's what I'm particularly interested in. And the teeth of course I mean you make your teeth when you're a child so now we can unlock these secrets from teeth using chemical analyses using isotope analyses and get a fairly decent idea of where somebody grew up as a child. So yeah, I think it's incredible that you've got that essentially document written in bone. And then of course, what's wonderful about many burials is that they don't just contain the human remains, they contain objects. And those objects are in a context which I just don't think we see anywhere else in archaeology. So obviously we find objects on on settlement sites and sometimes we find them completely isolated in in hordes, you know, where there's no context at all and you've just got a bunch of objects buried in a field. But in a burial, you've got objects which are meaningfully associated with an individual. And I think that's completely fascinating. So you start to see things like details of you know, where brooches might be in the grave and the brooches themselves, for instance, these, you know, I'm thinking about those beautiful Anglo-Saxon cruciform brooches and they might be gorgeous objects in their own right really interesting in terms of the styles and the way that you can map style through time as as Toby Martin's done so brilliantly with those brooches. But also the position of them relative to the skeleton gives you an indication of what that person was wearing. I mean, that's just astonishing that, you know, you can, talking to um, my lovely friend Hugh Wilmot, who has excavated a lot of Anglo-Saxon burials, and I talk about his Scremby site in the book. And he talks about this really interesting perspective where I think in the past, people have said, oh, there's a lot of brooches in this grave that might have been a very high status individual. And he says, no, hang on a minute. We know what these brooches are doing. They're fastening clothes. So if an individual has got two brooches on the shoulders and she was probably wearing a peat cloth dress, but then she's got you know, another brooch lying over her chest, she's probably being buried with not only in her dress, but also a cloak. And maybe we find that people who are buried in winter have more brooches with them than people who are buried in summer. And I just think that's absolutely fascinating. But yeah, you've got that intimate association of objects with person, either objects which are personal belongings or things which people have thought it's important to place this object in the grave with that person. So that connection between an individual and an object, I think, is so precious. Absolutely. I love that idea of, of different seasons. We don't really think about that at all, do we? We just treat them all as the same. That's great. Now, in thinking of the, the medieval period more specifically, Does that stand out, do you think, in any way at all, in terms of what we can tell from the dead? I think it stands out in terms of objects, actually, because we have a good few centuries in the middle of the first millennium where the general custom in Britain was to bury people. And it's, you know, it is burial. It's inhumation rather than cremation. So we get a lot of information from the skeletons. I mean, you can get some information from cremations, but it's a bit limited. And then there is this tradition of obviously burying people fully clothed and with other objects as well, which tell us something about identity. So it is very rich in that regard. And then, of course, towards the end of that first millennium, unfortunately, that custom disappears and we just have people buried 
we presume, you know, not with no clothes on, wrapped in a shroud and, and perhaps in a coffin as well. But you just, you lose the objects. So I think we do have this kind of quite exciting period for burial archaeology in the middle of the first millennium. When you have all that stuff, you have all these artefacts. I think it's wonderful. And of course, another thing that happens in this period is the birth of churchyards. And you write about that in the book as well. What impact does that have on our understanding of the period? These are really fascinating. And this is something, you know, I'm not a historian, so I quite enjoyed writing this book as well in, in terms of, you know, starting with the biological anthropology, starting with the skeletons, but then putting them in context and broadening out that context and looking at the history. And I suppose I hadn't really thought about the way that Christianity spread in Britain in any great detail before. And it's a very different story in the West compared to the East. So in the East, there seems to be a either a reversion to pagan religions. I don't like the term pagan. I don't know what else to call them. But it's a, it's basically a derogatory term, isn't it? You know, the religions of the countryside are the heathens, in the, you know, out in the heath, out in the countryside, what they believe. Those uncivilised people. Anyway, there seems to have been a reversion to pagan belief in the southeast. I mean, we don't know what's happening across much of Britain, of course. The historical evidence is so patchy. But we presume that was happening in the southeast because then, of course, the church finds the need to send people over to sort out the Anglo-Saxons like St. Augustine. But in the West, it's very different because we have very, very early evidence of Christianity, especially in West Wales. And so there's something different going on there. And I think it might be strong links with what is now France and strong links with essentially with what is left of the Roman Empire, because Christianity is just the Roman Empire continuing, but as a kind of religious empire. And so those early churchyards, you know, some of them are like 5th century and then 6th, 7th century in West Wales, I think are really fascinating. And the other thing is, of course, we all think that you find skeletons in churchyards, but churchyards are a new thing in the first millennium. People haven't had churchyards before that. Well, first of all, there haven't been any churches, but also even when you've got Christianity beginning, there's not necessarily an, an association between where you bury people and a church, despite you know what we're all familiar with in the particularly the English and Welsh landscape today. It's a bit different, of course, when you get into Scotland and, uh, and into Ireland, where often cemeteries are separate from settlements. And uh, that's the kind of change that we see happening. So we see cemeteries which are outside settlements changing over time to be associated with churches and then eventually coming into settlements. Whereas if you go back into the Roman period, you know, in Roman law, in the 12 tables of Roman law, it says you do not bury people inside the town boundary, inside the town walls. So it's a very different idea of what we do with the dead when we start to have churches inside settlements and churchyards around those churches. Yeah, absolutely. And that is such an interesting uh, point. And I think it's, it's interesting also what that means for what we can get out of, of the bones and the burials in terms of you know, how we associate them with a site and with a village and, you know, settlement and so many things to untangle and yeah and you go in through some of these I won't put too many spoilers in there people have to get the book and (laughs) read the rest but what I did want to do is go through some of the examples and some of the sort of case studies and examples that you you talk about in the book and what I really loved about Buried is actually the way that you you also talk about your own experience and your own association with a lot of these sites you've been very fortunate I think in your career to have been able to see so many different places and actually been involved with them and 
the first few chapters you do talk about the Romans. And I know this is a medieval podcast, so we're going to sort of skip over the Romans a little bit. Oh. <laughs> Just move into the medieval. We'll, we'll go back to a few of them later. Oh, but... the wonderful Killian pipe burial. Ah, oh. yes, oh. I know. But we could talk about that all day. You'll have to come on one of our other podcasts and talk about that one. All right, all right. <laughs> and then we'll, we'll go to the medieval <laughs> period. But so the one I wanted to talk to you about is the site at Bremore in Hampshire. Yeah, which is a, a brilliant site and. You were involved in this quite early on. And I think, is, am I right in saying that this was one of your first Time Team episodes that you were part of back in the it day? Was the, it was the first. It was the absolutely first one that I did. Yeah, the so first. I'd been writing bone reports for them. You know, as you know, you get the boxes of bones delivered to your lab. And I've been, you know, laying out the skeletons, writing reports for them on sites that they'd excavated because Time Team operated like any archaeological unit. It was producing a television program, but also it had to actually produce a report on each of the sites, of course, that it had excavated. And that involved the fieldwork, but also obviously reports from experts as well, say pottery experts, coin experts and bone experts. And they had a bit of a backlog of bones to look at. So I kind of got involved in the late 90s, I think. And then so I'd been doing that for a bit. And then they said, actually, we've got this site where we'd love you to come along. And I said, are you, well, you know, are you sure you're going to have bones? Because I'm going to have to move some teaching around. I was a full-time academic at the time. Are you sure there are going to be bones there? And they said, well, it is a cemetery site. (laughs) Yes, quite likely. (laughs) All right, then. Okay, so I went along and it was was absolutely fascinating. And it had been discovered by a metal detectorist, Steve Bolger, who had been metal detecting in this field and discovered the most beautiful object. I mean, it's absolutely stunningly beautiful. This Byzantine bucket that has come all the way from Antioch in what's now Turkey. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And it's it's made of brass and we think it would have been silvered with tin. And it's got pictures of heroes battling beasts, which are possibly leopards. And it's got a little Greek inscription on the top. It's just an absolutely beautiful object. And then what we found over the course of the excavation there was lots more buckets, none quite as beautiful as that original one, actually. But there was a real thing for buckets. And it's an again, it's an Anglo-Saxon cemetery. So it was, yeah, it was absolutely fascinating. And it was interesting writing the book because it made me go back and look at it all again and remember the mystery. So we came away from Bremer with lots of questions. And some of the questions were, uh, why were there so many buckets? I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of that. There are other sites that have buckets in them, but none at quite the density that we found. We think they're high status objects. They may have been used to contain food or drink as some kind of offering in the grave, perhaps. But what actually had been worrying me, I suppose, the last 20 years was why so many of the burials were multiple. So there were a few double and then even a triple burial with two young men and a child buried between these two men. And you just think, what is going on in this community? And they're very definite. um, You know, when you're digging, obviously, you're looking really carefully at whether you've just got graves that happen to be close together because it was difficult to see the grave cuts at that site. I remember that. It was very, very difficult to see the difference in the soil inside the grave and outside the grave, which some, you know, in some sites you can see so clearly. But in this one, you couldn't. So, so then we're thinking, well, maybe you've just got graves that are buried very close together. So they end up looking like multiple graves, but, but then clearly not because some of the individuals were intertwined with each other. You know, an arm would be over another skeleton. So we were absolutely sure that these were genuine multiple burials. Then you start thinking about why and you think that something catastrophic must have happened here to have so many multiple burials. So presumably you're either looking at some dreadful disease which has ripped through that community or you're looking at conflict. 
Now the bones are really crumbly and that's frustrating because obviously we can look carefully at the skeletons and look for signs of violent injury on the skeletons, but they were extremely crumbly. All of them actually, apart from those two male individuals with the child, and they were much better preserved and there were no signs. I couldn't see any signs of of violent injury on the bones. So, you know, could it be a disease? And then, of course, the interesting thing about diseases is that most of the diseases that kill you do so quickly and don't leave a mark on your skeleton. And so people like you and I, Kat, are left in the dark. And, you know, we could be presented with what looks like a perfectly healthy skeleton. It's obviously, you know, of a dead person. Yeah. And we don't know why they died. Yeah. And then very rarely we have these diseases which people live with. And then those leave signs in the skeleton. So the bone has had time to react to that disease. And some of them are really absolutely characteristic. So things like leprosy and syphilis, which leave these kind of very definite signs in the skeleton. And then you have kind of non-specific infections where you, we would just say, oh, well, it's, the bone is infected. There's maybe osteomyelitis with the bone and the marrow infected, but we don't know what caused it. We could suggest a range of bacteria, which might be the culprits, but we don't actually know. And then, of course, our geneticist friends come along and go, hello, <laughs> we can take samples <laughs> of this bone and we can decode not only the human DNA in it, but the pathogen DNA as well. So using the same techniques that we've been using to track the evolution of COVID through the pandemic, they're able to extract these samples of bone, boost the amount of DNA that they've got using PCR, which just amplifies the DNA, and then sequence it. And it's just astonishing. And the way that that's come on in the last 20 years, I mean, you know, when we dug Bremer in 2001, this wasn't even on the horizon. I don't think it even occurred to me that at some point in the future, we might be able to sample for pathogen DNA. And so, so now I'm like, where are the bones? Where have they ended up? Because I know they were in my lab at some point. Did they go into the archive at Bristol University? Did they go back to the local museum, which is where they should have gone? And I'm very pleased to say they did go back to the local museum. So we tracked them down and together with my friends at the Crick Institute, so Pontus Skogland is heading up a fantastic project called the Thousand Ancient Genomes Project. And in his lab, Pooja Swali is doing the metagenomics. So she is focusing on the metagenomes, the genomes of the pathogens. I said to Pooja, what about this site? And she said, yeah, okay, we'll have a look. So they've sampled them. And I spoke to Pooja last week. And no, it's all bad news. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, the no. good news, oh, no, it's thinking. all bad news. No. They're so crumbly. Oh, no. They are so crumbly. And I think when you've got crumbly skeletons like that, you kind of know that it's very unlikely to be any surviving DNA. So at the moment, we don't know. Because when I was looking at those Bremer skeletons again, looking at all the photos from the dig, I was reading a paper that was published, I think, in 2019, looking at a site that had been dug in the 1980s in Cambridgeshire called Edix Hill. And it was so similar. Lots of multiple burials, still with plenty of grave goods. That was interesting. So they're not hurried burials, but they are multiple burials. And that site had been investigated in um, a big study looking at the plague in Europe and turned up evidence of Yersinia pestis, the plague pathogen. And it's the first time that we've seen a sixth century plague in Britain. And we know what it is because it's well attested. It's the Justinianic plague that rips through the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. So we've got historical reference to it, but not in Britain. 
And now we're able to extend that with our fantastic new archaeological sciences and say, yes, this plague did reach Britain. And the authors of that paper actually said, you know, given that we've only looked at this one site and we found it, it's very likely that this was widespread and not that we just seem to have hit upon the one area where it did take hold. So I was just really fascinated because Bremer's a similar age. It's 6th century. So it's a bit disappointing. But Pooja's got one last trick up her sleeve, which is to actually go fishing for Yersinia pestis DNA. So rather than sequence it and then look amongst the sample to see if there's any there and it might be like looking for a needle in a haystack, they can use DNA probes. So a bit of DNA which will go and stick specifically to Yersinia pestis and see if they can pull any out that way. So that's she's got one last trick up her sleeve and I'm just I'm tenterhooks waiting to hear whether that's the case. Fingers crossed. I mean, that is so exciting. And this is so new. I mean, one of my questions on my list a bit later on here and my little plan for this conversation is, you know, what is there in the future and, you know, what is there to be excited about? But I think this just demonstrates that point so well, doesn't it? That there's so many new technologies now that are just refining all the time. And just going back, as you say, 20 years ago. So I should just sort of admit here that you were at Bristol University and so was I, but I was mm. a little baby undergrad and you were actually one of my tutors <laughs> on the human osteology course teaching me this sort of thing. But, you know, this wasn't even really a thing then, you know, and, and that's not actually that long ago. So I think that the leaps that we've come forward in this are, are just extraordinary. And, and presumably that is what is exciting. So even though, even if you're disappointed with those results now, it may well be then another 10 or 20 years, they could do it. Again, I suppose. Is that not what's quite exciting right now? It is exciting. And also, you know, they are managing to get DNA out of bone more and more effectively. So, yeah, I think that things will move on. There will always be, though, some cases where there just isn't anything there to look at. Yeah. But, you know, I'm holding out hope for Bremer. But as you say, it's such, I mean, it's such an exciting time at the moment with ancient DNA. I think it's equivalent to, I don't think I'm over-egging it. I think it's equivalent to when radiometric dating came along for archaeology and you had this kind of revolution where suddenly you could do radiocarbon dating and actually pin a date on something, not just a relative date according to the style of objects or where it was in the ground, but actually say, you know, how how old is this as long as it has some kind of organic component to it? And I think that this ancient DNA is, I think it is a revolution in archaeology. I think it's completely changing things. And I wrote a little bit in the in the previous book, Ancestors, about how there was a bit of a culture clash when these two worlds came together, when you had kind of the world of genetics and these scientists kind of wading in <laughs> to archaeological debates and sometimes early on publishing stuff without actually talking to archaeologists, which not only put the archaeologists' backs up, and I think that's perfectly reasonable, it also meant that they perhaps didn't understand the questions that the archaeologists were asking and also didn't understand, the, I suppose, the history of that inquiry and I do think you do need a bit of that. But I think that both, you know, both sides can learn from each other. And I think we're managing to negotiate that culture clash much better in Britain, actually, than, than perhaps in the States initially. Although I do think it's calming down now. And you've got people, you know, in Pontus's lab, Tom Booth is an archaeologist and a geneticist. And Tori King, who did the sequencing on Richard III, again, is an archaeologist and a geneticist. So I think that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to make the most of this new development and this new technique and this new science. Couldn't agree more. And I think it is really exciting. We do have to be careful because we do still get some conflicts like that. But I think it's also a really exciting time where we can take those new data sets that we get and combine them with the old traditional archaeology. And mm. so 
things like I get excited about family relationships in the Viking age. We get a lot of now yeah. direct family relationships. And then you can combine that with isotopes and contact. And suddenly you've got this, you know, it's a huge new world has opened up really, I think, with what we can tell. So yeah, it's so exciting. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. But I need to get back on track because I want to ask you some more probing questions about some of these sites that you've written about here. I feel like we could just talk all day. But so on this particular site, you just mentioned these graves and these double graves. And the one thing that you wrote about is the fact that these have a lot of weapons. You've talked Mm. about the possibility of there being a, a battle and so on. And you talk quite a lot in the book about the potential for these being warriors, that they are described often as warrior graves because they have a lot of weapons. And this is something that we come across quite a lot in in Anglo-Saxon archaeology and also Viking Age archaeology. The sort of, is someone buried with a a weapon, a warrior? You talk about it really nicely in the book. But the one thing I wanted to ask you about is in terms of injuries and trauma, you, you mentioned this a little bit already, that there wasn't really a lot of evidence of how these people died, so while you were going down the, the disease path. But in terms of warrior graves, possible warrior graves and trauma like that, if we have battle deads, if we have people who were warriors and who have died, 
how often and how likely is it that we see evidence of that death of that trauma in the skeleton is it is it sort of certain do we always see it if somebody's died in battle or or is it a bit more murky than that I think it's very murky and it's really tricky and it's kind of frustratingly tricky because obviously what you don't have is any soft tissue. So you are just looking at the bone. And I think one of the exciting things about biological anthropology is is what you can draw out a lot of information from the skeleton. But it's very, very rare to be able to determine cause of death. It's really, really tricky. Even if you've got a horrendous case of osteomyelitis, for instance, which you think, well, that could easily have turned into sepsis. That could easily have been the thing which killed that person. They could have been beheaded. You know, they could have been, you probably would have noticed that in the grave, but they could have died in so many different ways. And there's only a couple of kind of signs in the skeleton where you're pretty much sure that that's exactly what the person died of. And it's things like the hangman's fracture where the prong at the top of the spine on the second cervical vertebra has broken, which, you know, happens in a hanging, and you know, that clearly is hanging. There's a whole bit in the, um, I know it's straying back into the Roman period, cat, but I do actually talk about the medieval kind of description of some of these burials. There's a whole chapter on decapitated burials with interesting discussions about could some of these decapitated burials be decapitated post-mortem ah. to stop zombies, basically, and Simon Mays, who's the osteologist at um, Historic England, has done quite a lot of work on this subject, looking at medieval records of revenants, which are absolutely fascinating. And, you know, all these bishops saying, yeah, dig them up, cut their heads off with a spade. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. <laughs> and then so you go back to the Roman burials and get, because there is a real peak in the late Roman period of people being decapitated in graves. And then you suddenly realise it's very complicated. Some of them are probably executions. Some of them are probably people being beheaded in battle. Some of them may be a ritual. It looks like some heads have been detached quite carefully, which I don't think is either violent death or, you know, cutting the head off a corpse with a spade to stop a zombie coming back. So it may be a kind of strange ritual that we just don't really have any documentary evidence of. But I suppose I'm bringing up that because in those cases where you see a head in a different place in a grave, your immediate reaction is often well, this person was beheaded. Clearly, that was the cause of death. And it's not as simple as that. So you had to look really, really, really carefully at the skeletons. And where you see a carefully detached head, and especially a head that's been carefully detached from the front, I think that's very unlikely to be the cause of death. I think that's, you know, almost inevitably something which has happened to that body after death. So it's, no, it is frustrating not to be able to see. What we can do is look at a population level. And I think that it's interesting to look at diseases case by case and we get a fascinating insight into an individual and what they were suffering from. But when we broaden out to a population level and look at population level statistics, epidemiology, then we learn more about how diseases spread and evolve through time. And then you can also take a kind of epidemiological approach to violence as well. So you can gather all the information together and say, does this period of time look like a more violent period of time? rather than just relying on one cemetery. I think that's where the real value comes in. I don't think there's been enough work in that kind of area, actually, that kind of almost like a big data approach to it. And and our geneticist friends are basically leading the way in that. What they do is often a big data approach where they're trying to look at population movements through time. But I think we should be doing the same thing with pathology. Absolutely. And this has come up actually recently in my own work in looking at the Viking Age and thinking about violence in the Viking Age, which... 
we all assume is this sort of hugely violent period of time. Well, of course, but, they were just brutes, weren't they, Kat? They were just, yeah. you know, absolutely rampant brutes, you yes. know, really uncultured, uncivilised, just going around chopping up people. Completely unlike the peaceful <laughs> Anglo-Saxons who just sat there and took it all. The lovely yes. Anglo-Saxons, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly, that's that. <laughs> the lovely Christian Anglo-Saxons Precisely. and the naughty pagan Vikings as well. Yeah. Precisely, exactly. All of this baggage, is isn't there? Certainly what... Um, Alfred the Great and his publicist would have us think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting, just what you were saying there, looking at the evidence for violence. And actually, if you look at what's available at the moment across the Viking world, if you look at before the Viking Age, during and after, there isn't more violent trauma, injury in skeletons in the Viking Age than there is. In fact, I think the later period, just after the Viking Age, has more trauma than the Viking Age. Isn't that fascinating? Which yeah. Is, you know... You start to think, do we have to question this? We have to look at that bigger picture. Absolutely, just like you say. So It's really important, isn't it? Because it enables us to go back and look at things like, I mean, I think that when I really like Gildas's The Ruin of Britain, the history was so alluring. And, you know, you read his Ruin of Britain and it's just so exciting. I mean, it's basically a, a polemic. It's like a fire and brimstone sermon. All about these, these Anglo-Saxons arriving, the early Anglo-Saxons who were pagans, so they're bad. And they sweep through the country and then they dip their fiery tongue in the water in the, in the West. And you go, God, you know, they must have been surging through the country and chopping everybody up. And, and then actually, when you look at the archaeology, this just doesn't seem to reflect that at all. And I think that, you know, we have so few historical sources for that period. And so they've gained kind of undue prominence and been thought of as the last word almost on what was actually happening and so the archaeology is so important because it does actually give us a much wider picture, as you say, and just allows us to say, well, no, hang on a minute. Was there an uptick in violence at this point in time or not? We should move on to that a little bit, actually, because you do in the last chapter of your book that you've called Belonging, actually, and talking about these ideas of identity and especially what happens in that post-Roman period into this coming and arrival on the Anglo-Saxons and, and how this is all interlinked and related, which is a, such a hugely brilliant chapter and so, so interesting. Where are we now in terms of that, in terms of what archaeology and new methods like isotope analysis or DNA, how that's contributing? What's the sort of current status quo, I suppose, on that topic now? I think this is a fascinating question. I think there's two answers to this because I think one answer is about the approach that archaeology is taking now. And then another answer is what's the detail of the findings of what's happening in that first millennium? And one of the big questions, and I've kind of unashamedly focused on, you know, the southern half of Britain, I suppose, in this. The north is really fascinating as well. And I do talk about that a bit in the chapter on, on Anglesey and talking about the Vikings and the you know, the Kingdom of the Isles in the, in the north and that kind of fascinating connection with, with Scandinavia. But this burning question of whether there's a big influx of people in the first millennium, and not just in the first millennium, but, you know, in that post, specifically in that post-Roman period, the period we used to call the Dark Ages, which sometimes naughtily I still do call the Dark Ages because my historian friends get very, very irate about this because they've completely eschewed that um, old term and they think it's very derogatory and that people were doing lovely craft and things like that. But we don't have much history. So it's dark in terms of, you know, what we have written down, I think. And it's also dark in terms of learning. And I think historians will say, oh, you know, but there was some learning going on. And it was, you know, the church was doing a good job in preserving things. But it was also doing a really good job in getting rid of a lot of classical material, actually. That's another, you know, that's a whole other 
area of discussion. But I think that this, you know, this question of is there a big influx of people into southern Britain that could be this kind of arrival of the Anglo-Saxons? You know, the Venerable Bede writes about the Adventus Saxonum, the arrival of the Saxons, the arrival of the, um, he divides them up, you know, the Angles, the Saxons and the Jutes, who he says come from different homelands in, you know, Germanic places in Scandinavia and come and settle in very specific places in Britain. And it's all very neat, strangely neat when you look into it. He barely mentions the Frisians, who were surely more important than they, you know, it seems when we talk about these people coming over. Also, you never talk about people going back the other way. There must be people going the other way as well. So what genetics allows us to do is to say, well, you know, come on, is there a big influx of people? Because obviously what we can do with, with genomes is to look at people's genomes and say, are they substantially different than the genomes of the people who were there a few generations before you know, in the preceding centuries? So are the people who were in England in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries, do they seem to be coming from somewhere else or are they the descendants of the people who were there in the Roman period? And I think it's much more complicated than we've previously thought. I think we probably haven't thought enough about how much movement there was in the Roman period. I mean, for God's sake, we're part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was just brilliant at moving people around all over the place. Slaves, soldiers, merchants, <laughs> and then you know, loads of people who were just travelling for the sake of it. So, so I don't feel that we've got a good handle on whether there is more. I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit like, you're talking about, is there an increase in violence during the Viking Age? Is there an increase in population movement during the middle centuries of the first millennium? And I don't think we're there yet, but I'm very, very optimistic that Pontus and his team are going to provide us with at least part of the answer very soon. Certainly what we're seeing at the moment, I mean, there's been some work done, you know, limited number of genomes sequenced so far, looking at Anglo-Saxon cemetery sites and Trying to pick up, I mean, it's very tricky if we're talking about people moving within Northwest Europe. You know, if it was people coming from East Asia, easy. The genomes are quite different. Or well, I say quite different. We're, obviously, our genomes are largely the same. But, you know, there will be particular genetic variants which are, which are more frequent in East Asia. And you'll be able to see people coming in. If you're talking about people coming over the North Sea. I mean, for goodness sake, the North Sea has been a corridor for movement back into prehistory. So people have always been swapping genes across the North Sea, moving to and fro and, you know, settling on the other side of the sea. So it's going to be difficult and it's going to rely on really interesting techniques like looking for quite rare variants, which happen to be more common in Scandinavia, for instance, and then seeing if you see those popping up um, in England. And we've got some studies which have shown that, but what they haven't done is shown whether those rare variants are coming over in the mid first millennium or whether they're arriving in the Roman period. And you've got lots of auxiliary soldiers who we know are coming from places across the North Sea. So yeah, at the moment, we don't know. We're just starting to widen and, and unpick that. So that's the detail of it. I think the approach, you know, archaeology, I think is fascinating because when I started engaging with archaeology coming from a medical background, what I found really interesting about it was the philosophy, which is very embedded in it. You know, you can't do archaeology as an undergraduate in Britain without doing the philosophy and history of archaeology, which I think is really important because it feeds into how we're framing our questions today. And however objective you try to be, you're always subjective and you're always bringing some of that baggage with you. So it's really important to kind of know that history. And that was something for me, you know, coming from medicine, we didn't do that. I took a unit as a, as a kind of special module looking at philosophy of medicine 
It wasn't something that was embedded in the course at all. There wasn't, there wasn't that kind of introspection, which I think is really useful and mature in a discipline. And so archaeology is very aware of how it's changed in its approaches over the 20th century into the 21st century. And I think what we're seeing now is much more of a, what I would call a kind of bottom-up approach rather than a top-down one. So I think we're seeing much more of an approach where you go, okay, we've got this question in mind, but let's just look at all of the evidence in front of us and see what patterns are there. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, it is to an extent hypothesis-driven, but it's not always hypothesis-driven. And I don't think that matters. You're kind of looking to see what the patterns are and then interpreting them. So you're not kind of approaching it with an expectation of what those patterns are going to be. And you're also not asking binary questions. I think that's really important. So you're not just saying, is there movement? Isn't there movement? That's not the question. In fact, you know, there is inevitably going to be population movement. You're asking, what is the nature of this movement? And it's much more detailed. So I think there's two things going on. One thing is that we're getting closer to understanding whether Bede is actually telling us something which is reasonable historically, or you know whether he is himself coming up with a narrative which fits what he sees in Britain and kind of explains the cultural differences in Britain. You know, is he doing that? Or is there kind of some historical underpinning to what he tells us about the arrival of these people? So that's there on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I do think that archaeology is changing. And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps it is changing because of the archaeological sciences that are coming on board now. I don't know what you feel about that, because I mean, that's your, I mean, your whole approach to the Viking era has been to embrace these new scientific approaches and to see how they feed in. Do you, I mean, do you think that's changing archaeology? I think it's absolutely changing it because I think it's forcing us to be much more careful with what questions we're asking and and with using those other sources, because suddenly we have a sort of check. And I mean, I've, I've always sort of tried to make it really clear that the sciences aren't going to give us all those answers. It's not a silver bullet. We're not just going to send off a sample and then solve the whole Anglo-Saxon migration, so solve the Viking Age. That's never going to happen. You know, we need that interpretation. But it's just giving us that extra sort of category of evidence and set of data that's forcing us to be really open-minded, because sometimes it gives us completely the the answer we were not expecting yeah. at all. And that's exciting, and isn't it? That's always it is exciting. It's really yeah. exciting because first you go, oh no, but then you go, ooh, but, you know, so when you suddenly find someone in the Viking Age that comes from a climate, like a really hot climate. So if I come across someone in, in a grave in, like in Repton, there's somebody there who clearly has come from a really warm climate, not, you know, I'm expecting the Baltic or yeah. somewhere freezing. And then suddenly it's, you know, maybe it's Spain or something like that. And and then you have to sort of question all of those assumptions that you've made before. And, and I think having all those methods there just leaves that open and it leaves sort of open a whole new range of things to question. And I think it's making us much more aware that we can't just take the beads and the gildas and, you know, all of those. Yeah. Or are, you know, the people we've learned from and the people two or three generations of archaeologists before us, you know, we can't even take their word for sort of granted or for true. We have to as you say, try and be even more objective because all of a sudden we have a whole new sort of set of data. So uh, that's getting quite philosophical about it all. <laughs> but I think, I think it is changing. It's not giving us the answers uh, on its own, but I think we are getting those big data sets. We're getting that shift in how we're thinking about it. And, yeah. and sort of people are sort of communicating and listening across the discipline. So yeah. it is exciting and it's, it's new. And I think we will. I'm quite optimistic that we're going to get closer to some of those answers pretty soon. 
Yeah, and ask different questions as well. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think we have to work at those data sets. So, so, you know, look at the artifacts, look at the objects and the scientific data. And then, yeah, fingers crossed, we'll get there. Yeah. So I have a whole other page of questions that I want to ask you, but I think that's going to take us into like a whole day's worth of, of episodes. So that we could just chat forever, couldn't we? I yeah, mean, we really yeah. could. But I think we, for, for the sake of our listeners, we probably haven't got all day. I can only really tell people to go out and buy your book. So the book is called Buried, An Alternative History of the First Millennium in Britain by Professor Alice Roberts. And if you're not a sort of diehard medieval fan, you could definitely go into those Roman sites at the beginning, the uh, the headless Romans and some really, really sort of great studies there. I had hoped to get the time to talk to you about the possible Vikings in a ditch but yeah, I think we're going to leave yeah. them, sort of get people to go and read about them because there's some really fascinating uh, other cases there. And of course, a lot more about even some of the sites that appeared on Digging for Britain, White Sands in Pembrokeshire, yeah. for example, and other early Christian possibly sites, uh, cemetery sites that you talk about in the book as well. So I think that's all I can do really is get people to go and get the book and read for themselves. Yeah. And then, yeah, if you've got questions, ask me on Twitter. Yes. Or do- I hang out usually. Do go and find Alice on Twitter and, yeah, just see what you, you think of the book. But I would definitely recommend it. So, Alice, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk about all of this today. Kat, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. This has been today's episode. I'm back again next Tuesday and my co-host Matt Lewis is back on Saturday. But in the meantime, if you do want more medieval content in your life, don't forget you can subscribe to our newsletter medieval mondays just look in the episode notes and you can find out how to do that and thank you all so much for listening i hope to have you back again with us soon hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain i learned this the hard way after losing my cat gingy so i created pretty litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.